If you would turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8, verse 34 to 38. want to thank you for the privilege it is to be able to come before you and bring the word of God. And uh, I trust in his word, not in myself, that it is effective. As Martin Luther, he would rest assured every night, he would sleep easy knowing that if he preached the word, the word was effective. And I pray that that would be the same for us today. Now, coming on the heels of this passage, um, Peter has just made the great confession that Jesus is the Christ. And after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the confession that every Christian must make in order to follow him, uh, Jesus begins to tell him that the Christ must suffer. And Peter, this does not comport with his understanding of who the Messiah was, of who he was following. And he began to rebuke Jesus. So Jesus rebuked him and told him that he did not have his mind set on the things of God, but on the things of man. And this is what leads us to the text. You see, Peter did not understand the Christ that he needed. There was a Christ that he wanted. And there was the disciple that he wanted to be. See, the Messiah would be one in the Jewish mind at the time, would be one who would come and take over and throw over the ruling powers, uh, which was Rome at the time, and Israel would be redeemed, and the Messiah would set up a new kingdom. So those who followed him and believed that he was the Christ, this was a pretty sweet deal for them, because they would reign with him. But this wasn't the Christ that Peter needed. See, if Christ went down, the disciples went down with him. And Peter wasn't the disciple that he needed to be. But Christ leads us to the disciple that we all must be. Read with me in verse 34 and following. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever who would lose his life, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray. Father, this text speaks to all of us. And I confess that I need your grace in my time of weakness. And I pray that you would empower me with your sufficiency for the sake of your name and for your glory and for your people here tonight. Pray, God, that you would give them ears to hear. God, I pray that they would heed this word, that they would count the cost, and that they would pay it gladly for the Christ who carried their cross. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. On April 9, 1945, near the end of World War II, a man was hung who had a position of military intelligence who was seeking to 
help Jews escape. And it was also part of one of the many attempts to assassinate Hitler and overthrow his regime. This man was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Bonhoeffer, before leading up to this moment in his life under the Nazi regime, in 1937 he wrote a book that's a Christian classic today. It's called The Cost of Discipleship. And in this book, he has a particular quote that speaks well to this text today. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Now this was coming from a man who had counted the cost. And as seen in his life, he was willing to pay the price. And that's what led him to his death in 1945. But this call to follow Christ is a call to die to yourself. In this text, I want us to see five main points. Christ's call of discipleship is to the Christian following him and also to those who are not. It's for those... The call of discipleship is not just for the unbeliever. It's not something to say to the unbeliever, you should really consider what you're getting yourself into. It's for the professing Christian. Have you considered what you've gotten yourself into? Are you willing to keep going down this path? The next point is that Christ does bid each and every one of us come and die. Thirdly, Christ's question for you tonight is, will you die now or will you die later? Fourthly, Christ warns you that you have everything to gain and everything to lose. And finally, Christ invites us to bear the shame of the cross. Look with me in verse 34a, first part. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples. See, Christ doesn't just call the disciples. He calls the crowd. Those who are keeping a distance from Christ, following and observing him, seeing a man who teaches profound things, has amazing authority that even the scribes and lawyers do not have, who performs many miracles, who even has fed people, healed their diseases. There was a lot of reason why to follow this man. It may have been for personal gain, for benefit, or maybe there was something that he was going to do to change their status in their life that would have been worth it. But see, for these people who would be following, who would be simply observing and following for various reasons, they would keep their distance. That's why they were not one of the disciples. But for us to understand this about the crowd is that there is no safe distance from Christ. Any distance from Christ is dangerous. And for this crowd to simply stand by, they were in a dangerous position. As close as they may think that they are, they were not close enough. But then he calls the disciples as well. See, for the disciples, they need to understand Before you follow me, you need to count the cost as well because you don't know what you've gotten yourself into. Peter did not understand. That's why Peter rebuked Jesus thinking that Jesus didn't understand what the Messiah was supposed to do. Jesus, you can't die because what does that mean for the rest of us? 
But for the Christian, they must understand that there is a cost to pay. This is not the easy life. This is not the life of comfort. This is not the easy gospel that is preached on TBN or on the radio. This is not the popular gospel, but it is the true gospel. See, for the disciples, there needs to be no fog on the road where you're going. You need to know crystal clear what's going to happen, what your destination is. So Christ lifts the fog for them so that they may truly know what it means to follow them. And he invites them to join him. And he bids them come and die. Read with me in the second part of verse 34. He said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Notice that he says, if anyone would come after me. He is not presuming upon their position and their relationship to him. He's not presuming that they are exactly where they think they are. He's not presuming that they will stay with him, that they know exactly what's happening. But he's challenging them. If anyone in this crowd or if anyone in this room would follow Jesus, you need to heed and consider my words. The first part of the Christian disciple and the first part of counting the cost, he says, let him deny himself. We often have, we have this language of let him deny himself, but we misunderstand often in our common language of what he is saying. He's not saying uh, if it be permissible or maybe there be some allowances of time where you may need to deny yourself. But this is an imperative. It is a command. You must deny yourself. There is no room in this world for two kings. This is the first step. And it is the constant battle of the Christian life. Why? Because you cannot serve two masters. And the hardships of following Christ are too difficult in order for you to put yourself, your comfort, and your preferences first. What does denying oneself look like? It looks like a cross. That's why Jesus says, secondly, let him take up his cross. He must take up his cross. Well, what was the cross? What was Jesus referring to when he said this to the the ears of the time? The cross was a humiliating, excruciating, public display for those who would rebel against the authorities of the day. And it was reserved particularly for Jewish people. Now, when he says, let him take up his cross, imagine now what that would consider. Because our understanding of the cross has been so downplayed because of its commonality as an accessory or some kind of uh, public image with no understanding of what the cross really means. Now, for the people to hear him say, carry your device of public execution, and humiliation. This is not exactly a popular gospel or a way to gather a large following. Imagine if he said, take up your electric chair or take up your gas chamber. Why not uh, take up your rope on which you'd be hung at the gallows? Or maybe perhaps 
carry your gun and ammo from which you will hand over to the firing squad when they lay you down, or possibly the guillotine for your beheading, or stones with which you will be stoned. Let him take up his cross, had incredible significance to the people when they would hear him say this. The cross was not a once-in-a-lifetime display of execution. This was a common practice for Romans that everybody was familiar with. So Christ, though, speaking of a cross, he knew that he was going to himself carry a cross. But he was going to carry a cross that we could not carry. Christ was not going to just endure physical pain and exertion, humiliation and shame. But his cross was the wrath of God for our sins. But consider the other deaths, other Christians in history. The apostles themselves, every single one of them, except for Judas and possibly the apostle John, were executed for proclaiming the gospel of Christ. John perhaps was executed or died of starvation or old age. And Paul himself was beheaded. Peter had said historically that he died on a cross upside down. There's no such thing as an ordinary Christian, but Christians die ordinarily as well. You have to understand that though not every Christian dies from the same thing, but every Christian dies to the same thing. That is yourself. Christ is not assuming that you will have to die on a cross, a physical cross, in order for you to be a Christian and follow him. Nor is he saying that you must be martyred for your faith in order for you to be a Christian. Christ is speaking metaphorically that you must carry the cross upon which you will hang your will, your desires, your preferences, your dreams, your hopes, your securities upon the cross. Because there is no room for yourself in the kingdom of God other than if you will be one of the unworthy servants who will simply say, we've only done what we've been asked to do. And we talk today, today, November 5th, is praying for the persecuted church. And when we think about the persecuted church, we often think about what a privilege it is in our current country at the time for however long it is, we have such privileges that we can be here and gather not only free from fear but protected by law that we can come and gather still for the time being. But the persecuted church, what we need to also think is that those who are persecuted, the state in which that they make a profession of faith, they know exactly what they're getting themselves into. If you think that you're afraid to share the gospel with a coworker now, Imagine sharing the gospel with somebody that if you leaked anything gospel or Bible, it's not your job at risk or your friendship at risk. It's your children and your spouse at risk. Your children could be orphaned because you share the gospel with somebody or because you profess to be a Christian. You could end up in prison not knowing what is happening to your spouse. When we think of the persecuted church today, we also need to think of what faithfulness that they have done in counting the cost. And praise God, you know what? They do it willingly. Because they know on whom they are following and that he is worth it. And then Christ tells them, not only do you carry your cross, but you carry it while you follow me. This communicates an ongoing life of the Christian. 
an ongoing, not a singular moment of profession of faith or adherence to the Baptist faith and message, but as a daily carrying of the cross. That's why Luke himself even adds in his portrayal of this speech, he adds the word daily. For the Christian life, the Christian life could be summed up in four words. Thy will be done. C.S. Lewis wrote in The Great Divorce, listen to these words and heed them. There are those who say to God, your will be done. And there are those to whom God says, your will be done. Those who reject Christ and reject the call to follow him, they get exactly what they want. Now consider that this cross, which I've already said, is dying to self. But to clarify, the cross that you carry is not simply the burdens of life. The cross is not simply the struggles in your relationships or the struggles you have at work or struggles that happen in this life, although they are difficult and there is grace for those. But that is not what Jesus is talking about. Otherwise, everybody in the world would be carrying some sort of cross. The only ones who follow Christ are the ones who are willing to place themselves on that beam and hang their own self-appointed crown upon it. So for you and for me, what is Christ calling us to die to? What could it look like? For the rich young ruler, when Christ was calling him to follow him, he had to die to his financial security. His money was his Messiah. Like Peter, who was interested in reigning with the Messiah and ruling, Peter had to die to his self-interest. The Apostle Paul had to die to his legalism, trying to earn favor with God on his own merit. Or Bonhoeffer, who was offered the solace of America and denied it, knowing exactly what he was going into because he knew that the people in Germany needed a pastor at the time. Again, as I said before, not every Christian dies from the same thing, but every Christian dies to the same thing, yourself. This means crucifying, not laying aside, not even submitting. Those aren't even words that are strong enough for what Jesus is getting at. You are crucifying your will against God. Your desires that are not in line with God's desires. Your preferences, your plans, your hopes, your dreams. So that you may truly follow Christ. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. You can say with the Hebrews author, let us throw aside every sin that entangles us, that we may run the race with endurance. Now let the Apostle Paul's words become yours. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I have been crucified to the world and the world to me. Galatians 6.14 Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Speaking of 
crucifying our wills and desires. In the next verse, Jesus asks us, Will you die now or will you die later? Read with me in verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This language of saving, saving, keeping, guarding. If you would save something, it's because you see it as precious. You may save your time, save money, save moments because they are valuable to you. But notice he emphasizes if anyone would save his life, whose life matters in this question? It's the self. If you would seek to save his own life, if you would seek to save your own life, to keep it, to guard it, to say, God, this is my life. I will live it how I want to live it. Well, then for the time being, God will let you. He will say unto you, your will be done. But those who would seek to save it must lose it. See, this life that he's speaking of is more than simply a birth to death. And that short time window that shows up on your tombstone, there's more to it than that. Christ is referring to the whole being. This word that is used, it's the same word that is used for life or soul in this text. And it refers to your entire person, including the eternality of your soul. So the person who would lose it, who seeks to save it, He's saying that it's so futile to try to save your life. Jesus is trying to help you here. This isn't a a doom text. This is a, let me help you. You're seeking to save your life. You've come into this world trying to survive, and you seek to save your life. Guess what? It's already gone. It's like trying to hold on to a handful of oil or try to grab a fistful of air. It's hopeless. But whoever would lose his life, for my sake and the gospels will save it. It will be kept for you by God. Christ isn't promising, just promising death, but he's also offering life. He's offering you life that you couldn't dare dream of. How does this happen? You abdicate your self-appointed throne. You throw up your white flag and surrender. Notice that he says here, for my sake and the gospels. Christ is not afraid to make this all about him. Give it up for me. He's not saying for God's sake. He's saying for me, which in part he's saying for God's sake, give it up for my sake. He's not afraid to make it all about him. See, the litmus test for every Christian is to ask yourself, who are you living for? And that's what Christ is asking. What am I worth to you? Although struggling to live for Christ, for Christians, you always will. Just know that Christ carried your cross for that too. Notice that Christ is not also, he doesn't state specific acts. He doesn't give us boxes that we can check off and say, hey, I've died to myself today. That's not what Christ is about. 
That's not what it's ever been about. It's always been about the heart. Christ wants your total heart, your absolute allegiance to him. Why? Because it only makes sense that you would serve the true king. And him wanting your heart. It doesn't matter what you do. Even if you offered your body to be burned without love, it means nothing. That's why Christ is getting at if you would deny yourself, lose yourself for my sake and the gospels. Because to live Christ-centered means to be gospel-centered. Did you know that the gospel is one thing that you will never get tired of talking about? You'll never get tired of singing about? That in a million years, you'll continue praying for the, about the, and praising God for his glorious grace? This leads us to our next. As he is offering life, he is warning you and me that you have everything to lose and everything to gain. Read with me in verses 36 to 37. For what could a man give in return for his soul? Sorry, 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? This text. He's asking you to question. What price tag would you put on your soul? If you had a price tag on there, what would you write? What would you sell it for? Would you sell your soul for that promotion that you've been wanting? Would you write on that price tag the second home, the boat? Would you write on there sexual sinful pleasures forevermore? Would you write on your price tag the best relationships? He's saying you could write on there the whole world. What if you wrote everything, that the world was your oyster and that nothing was held back from you? And that was on your price tag. Then would you sell your soul? But would it profit you anything? It would profit you nothing. That's what Christ is getting at. That it would profit you nothing if you reject my call to follow me. Even if the world gave you everything, which it won't. It'll leave you empty, void, and broken. His point is that there's nothing more valuable to you than your soul because the world is temporal. The world has no longer expiration date than the milk in your refrigerator in the eyes of eternity. I had a conversation with a coworker about this text because she continued to live a life contrary to the gospel, although she seemed to want to go to church and live the Christian life and wanted to have a relationship with God. But at the same time, she wanted to live a life of partying and whatever it might, else it might be. And I told her this text, and I said, Jesus himself said that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, carry his cross, and follow me. What would it profit you if you gained the whole world and forfeit your soul? And I told her, you're playing games. And she laughed, and she said, I'm not playing games. I said, you are playing games. You're playing games with your soul. You're playing games with eternity. You're playing games with ultimate things. And her face got very sobered. And she said, that's scary. I said, yeah, that is scary. And I'm burdened for you. 
because you think that you're a disciple, but you're still among the crowd. The question is, where is everybody else in this room? Are you a disciple? Are you a disciple that has counted the cost and continues to be a disciple? Or do you keep your distance in the crowd and hope that nobody will notice? Jim Elliott, in the early 20th century, mid-20th century, him and four friends were gripped by the gospel. And they knew the cost. They were so willing to pay it that they went to the Alka tribe in Peru. And Alka is not actually the name of the tribe. It's what everybody called them. It means savage. Nobody wanted to go near this tribe because anybody that went near them was killed, especially white people. White people were the most threatening, especially male white people, the most threatening. And so they took their time really trying to build a relationship with these people. They even took a plane and would circle around their area and drop off baskets of gifts, trying to just soften their hearts to them, to let them know that we are not enemies, we are friends, we want to know you. And most importantly, they wanted to share the gospel with these people. Now, eventually, they had warmed up to them, and they had kind of allowed them to come. They'd found a spot to land, and the tribe came out and actually kind of greeted them and visited them, and things seemed to be going well. The tribe disappeared for a bit, and something had happened with some misinformation and misunderstanding about what they were going on. Uh, One of the tribesmen, I believe, lied to them and told them something else that wasn't true. And so the whole tribe went on defense, came to the men, and speared them all to death. But Jim Elliott and his family, he knew and his wife knew that those days, that last day, when he was going to see them, they knew that that might be their last day. And this is what Jim Elliott wrote. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Listen to that again. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What a beautiful summary of what Jesus is saying here. So the question, what would it profit you to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? What would it profit you to gain success in this world and forfeit your soul? What would it profit your children to get scholarships and academic success yet forfeit their soul? What would it profit your grandchildren who succeed in sports and business yet forfeit their soul? How will you find comfort when Christ returns in the glory of his Father with the holy angels? How will the world comfort you then? That leads us to our last verse. And our last point is that Christ invites you to bear the shame of the cross. Read with me in verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. To be ashamed of me and of my words, to be ashamed of Christ and of his words. Speaking of allegiance, loyalty, what would it take for you to reject this call? What would it take for you to walk away? Because if there's something that it would take, if there was something that could happen that would cause you to walk away, you should consider whether or not you've counted the cost and whether or not you should continue following Christ. This adulterous and sinful generation sounds a little bit like ours, doesn't it? 
This is prophetic language. This is the language of the prophets. This is an indictment upon our world as a whole. Not just those people that are in the crowd. This word was given to us for Fisherville in the 21st century to know that this is an adulterous and sinful generation. And there is a lot in this world to pull you away from Christ. To try to lure you with what it might give you. Because people are not as good as they think that they are. And they need to question where they stand before a holy and righteous God. Notice that Christ uses the language of son of man. What is the son of man language? In the mornings we've been going, we used to be going through Daniel. And uh, Pastor Brian pointed out for us. In Daniel 7, you can just listen. I'll read it to you. But this is the reference where Jesus is calling himself the son of man. In Daniel 7, it says this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient, day, ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should, should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This son of man comes on the clouds of heaven. Do you know who else comes on the clouds of heaven? God. And he refers to himself as this king on which his kingdom will never pass away. So Peter, you're looking for a Messiah who's going to reign. I will reign, but not this time. This time I come as a suffering servant. He does another thing with this son of man language. Sometimes we don't notice that Jesus is always talking to, about himself in the third person. You ever wonder why Jesus is always saying the son of man this and son of man that? Saying like, Scott is cold, or Scott is speaking to you right now, or Scott's running out of ways to refer to an ilyism. But an ilyism is we're speaking to of a third person. And the reason why people did this, the time that when people did this, there was usually a divine or royal figure who would speak about themselves in the third person. Jesus was communicating, I'm the son of man of Daniel 7, and I am the king that you've been waiting for. But this son of man is asking you, Consider who is calling you to follow him. When he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. Jesus wants his listeners, his crowd, you today to look beyond this, the horizon of this short existence into eternity that waits all, waits all of us. Consider the fact that a judgment is coming. There is a time when Everything that matters, anything that matters, is your relationship to me. That is the question of all questions at the end of time. Where do you stand with Christ? Do you stand among the disciples or among the crowd or among the scoffers? Paul uses the same language of being ashamed in this There's some things to be ashamed about. There really is. But one thing there isn't to be ashamed about is Christ. Listen to Paul. 2 Timothy 1, 8-12. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel, for the power of God. Romans 1, 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. See, this call to discipleship 
is a high price. But it is much, much higher to reject it. And in light of eternity and what Christ has done, it is a very small price. To simply bow the knee to the true king. Because it is easy to float through the Christian life thinking that you are a disciple when actually you remain among the crowd. And those who are disciples and have counted the cost, remember the cross that was carried for you. Christ carried your cross, carried your burden. And as you carry the cross and follow Christ, know that it is only through death to yourself that you will truly live in Christ. And this is the price that every Christian must pay. The Schutzstaffel doctor, often abbreviated SS, means protective echelon, who observed Bonhoeffer's death in his last moments. He said he recalled a man devout, brave, and composed. He said, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Bonhoeffer sent one final message to George Bell in England. Listen to what he said. This is the end. But for me, the beginning of life. See, the first disciples, Bonhoeffer, Eliot, and his friends, and every Christian, even you, whether you are a disciple or among the crowd, you must recognize the cost of discipleship and be willing to pay for it. The price is high, but the cost of rejecting this call to die to yourself is eternally greater. Die to yourself in order that you may truly live. Let's pray. Father of mercy, I pray for grace upon these people here. Those who have counted the cost, I pray that you give them encouragement, perseverance, to continue following you no matter what the cost. Father, I pray for those who are among the crowd and merely observing and are not quite sure if they're really ready to follow. I pray, God, that you would open their eyes to the value of it to the life that Christ is offering them. And those who have made professions of faith, but we're not quite sure how hard this cost was, I pray you give them grace to encourage them, strengthen them in this adulterous and sinful generation. And we praise you, God, for your grace and for the cross that was carried for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.